Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. And there we are. Yes. So we are live and we are the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. <laughs> and our very special guest today is Dr. Mark Brummett, formerly of the Colgate-Rochester-Crozier Divinity School, professor of Old Testament, when we all went there about a decade ago. And so we asked him to be one of our first guests here on this wonderful Wait, podcast. A decade. Yeah. Oh, okay. Carry on. Sorry to interrupt, but whoa. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. But yeah, no, me and Emily graduated in 2012, so it's no. been 10 it, years. Exactly. That's just, isn't that Well, awesome? I graduated in 2016. It was not as bad. <laughs> <laughs> that is, yeah. Okay, so time has shrunk, and I think the pandemic has that, but I'm interrupting you. Carry on. Carry oh, on. <laughs> I mean, no worries. Like, I mean, I think about how young I was, like, seriously effing young when I went you to CRCDS. You had college, hadn't you? I, I had just left college. You were at college, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I was 21 when I filled out my application and 22 when I started classes. I think Emily was yeah. just above that. And mm -hmm. I was still Natalie Forney. <laughs> I had just gotten engaged. Like I haven't been Natalie Forney in almost 12 years now, but <laughs> I, I mean, I was driving this like beater Chevy Malibu that was like a 50-50 chance it would I start. I remember that car, <laughs> she had a name. Molly. Molly, yeah, Molly. <laughs> and she had a broken muffler. So she was like the loudest car on the planet. So like you could hear me coming from a block away in Molly. And but but this was me. And like I lived out of a suitcase in a studio apartment on campus at CRCDS that I shared <laughs> with my sister. Right. So like that is how young and broke and po I was. And you now know, now the age where we've got the broken mufflers which is a thing I just said and regret, so keep <laughs> no, And now I drive a minivan and I buy paper towels in bulk. So this is my life now. <laughs> Same um, yeah. There's the now cycle have, of life. Yeah. <laughs> now I have children who have college funds. Like, yeah. Me too. Well, Congratulations. I have children. They don't have college funds. Good luck to them. Oh, unfortunately, <laughs> capitalism makes that a necessity. I, I, you know, I don't want to think that way, but if I want, I, I feel like if I want my kids to even have a, a shot at mm -hmm. college, I, I have to put that away now. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> could be it could be but anyway so for our dear friend mark who has joined us the foot we always like to kick off on is to tell us anything that you want to about your spiritual journey i saw that you on your email you gave some sort of guidelines of what was coming up and i saw that and it's always the um one of the hard is it's like the most obvious and a question and one of the hardest to go for in a way um so, well, I was not raised church. Um, church is a, is a minority sport back home in the UK these days. And even when I was growing up, it was already. And um, 
and I was born in the late 60s, well, 67, so my memory is the 70s, starts in the 70s, really, and my parents had been brought up in a small miling village in the north, very much Methodist, and I have a vague memory of being taken to the Methodist church down the road in the town I grew up in, which is just east of London, and screaming like Damien in The Omen, and I think it was the last time they ever darkened the door. So if there's any problems with their souls at the pearly gates, it's probably my fault. Um, and was not raised church, not formally raised church. My parents would have identified as normally, would have identified as Methodist, so sort of nominally so for the most part. Um, and were, but it was also a time when it was very typical in, in state schools, state grade schools to be told Bible stories in a morning assembly, which happened every morning before classes. And we were read all kinds of Bible stories. And I was an odd kid in that I was genuinely interested in many of them. So much so that my aunt, who was sort of my godmother figure, my grandparent figure almost, gave me one of those children's Bible um, well, just a children's Bible with all the illustrations. And I love the Old Testament. And I got to the New Testament and it was just lots of guys in white robes, it looked like. It was not anything like as interesting. And it was new and I didn't like the new. I wanted the old. It had a sort of a grounded sense. Even then I had that sense new was new found, fangled. My interest was with the old. And then whoa, no surprise, I became an Old Testament professor. But um, I remember being around about five or six, seven at the most, in the playtime, sort of mid-morning, 15-minute break, running around the parking lot of the school in my canvas shoes, which everybody wore in those days at that in, in England, and seeing a big cloud and it halted me in my steps and the cloud looked like a rather stern bearded guy looking at me. And it was this unnerving sense of, oh my God, is that God? And okay, so I tell this story as a 50 something so it's a story which has been processed by the years and three theological degrees between. But I knew, I kind of knew it was a cloud. But at the same time, it was almost like the cloud bounced back at me, my own size. Like I saw this cloud and it was this sudden awareness of what a tiny dot I was from that cloud's perspective. And yet that cloud saw me. So it was both an, and I almost saw myself from the perspective of that cloud. It's very hard to describe, but it was this sudden sense of an otherness beyond me that maybe precociously for a kid, where a kid, everything is very much about where's my food coming from and what's for Christmas and what's on TV of this otherness. Um, I am, Beginning some work at the moment on narrative in relation to ADHD, no surprise that I am 
the proud possessor of an ADHD brain, anybody that spent any time with me and knows anything would recognize that, but it did take a doctor to one day point it out. But um, that in some ways is not atypical of an ADHD brain to have that flip sides experience. Um, but it, it never hit the fact that I'm telling you now, it never left me, it was a, it was an experience that stayed with me of seeing myself in context. I think by the age of being 12 or 13 and realizing that my romantic interests were boys, not girls, had a similar effect because you can't assume the usual narrative. It occurred to me that I was not going to be I was, my relationship with my peers was, uh, was different from those around me in that sense. So again, it made me not take my context, my journey for um, granted. And I didn't have the easiest time at school for a variety of reasons. One would be the ADHD thing, the other would be having a slightly different accent from other people in a country where class is an obsession, still to have a even slightly different accent from your surroundings marks you out. And then also the what clearly emerging as the sissy boy, um, church for me began as a surprisingly safe haven. I started going to church around about 12 or 13 under my own volition, first because I was part of the local boys brigade, then I sort of settled down on a, a on a mission church that made sense to me very much. And um, as a minority sport, as I say, religion is in, in Britain, Christianity is. Uh, and OK, so when I say it's a minority sport, I recognize there are different demographics where religion, not necessarily Christian religion, plays a, a much more robust part in community but as a general thing but um and church gave me a context a, a focus that was incredibly stabilizing and helpful my mother died in my mid-teens my father just retired from his job and went to australia and from uh, 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 and then traveled elsewhere and so really from about the age of 16 17 i was very much doing my own thing and church was this incredibly stabilizing piece and it I think any spiritual journey came after that it grew out of that a relationship with with the, with with God with the sacred came out of that um church preceded it somewhat but church as an institution was therefore very much, I would say, my salvation because it gave me stability when there wasn't very much. It gave me a focus. I suddenly realized that although I hadn't been very good at school, I really did have a proclivity for theology. And I went, I trained as a nurse because back then you didn't need to go to college in England to do that. It was a full RN training, which was hospital based and very practical. So I I, I needed an income. I didn't really have grades from school that were going to get me anywhere other than that kind of work. So I got into a, a local hospital program and was training as a nurse there and suddenly realized I was actually very capable as a nurse and then started 
training for ordination in my my denomination at the time and that's when I realized that I was pretty good at theology and biblical scholarship and it really went from there and so it was started as an external stabilizing and then became an internal relational stabilizing of and I was talking about this yesterday with who oh yes with another alum I had lunch with yesterday, um, that detachment is a huge part of faith. Life is loss, strangely. It's, it's the one thing as you go along, leaving friends behind, moving on, leaving your hometown, those sorts of things, particularly in modernity where we are much more... Um, likely to have to move for work the choices therefore um choices that mean that you're leaving things behind losing the generation above you as you get older and then losing as in my 50s already starting to to lose people of my own age and of course growing up in as a teenager in the 80s hitting 20 at 1987 uh, and I was working in an HIV uh, I was helping with an HIV drop-in center um, and becoming quite used to loss through nursing and then through that work at the time um, that that's what I mean by detachment I think detachment has always been part of my spiritual journey in that I always feel I have to do a little bit of work or make a little step to be I'm not quite sure what I'm saying now it's interesting I've gone a place I didn't expect to go and how do I articulate that but that not being able to take something for granted and discovering in the scripture plenty of resonances and wisdom around that of being prepared to lose one's life to find it mm. and the work I do in the Hebrew Bible and bit by bit this dawning recognition, uh, recognition and particularly because my work is in in the prophets primarily and Jeremiah specifically the raging against idolatry is first and foremost about images of our God. Idolatry is not other gods. It can be, it certainly is in Jeremiah, there's a suspicion of the Baals, but um, it's just as much, if not more pertinent when it is your own God. The God of Israel, when we make our own God the idol. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that that is the loss of detachment. That is the loss, that is the assumption. The, the thing that, that we assume we know, we assume the narrative and we're called to detach from that and do not make those assumptions. Do not think you've got it down. Um, and for me, that has been very central to my experience. And, and then uh, as you, continuing your studies and you're introduced to other world religions and you see that that is key elsewhere buddhism particularly the practice of detachment of um and seeing that there is something paradoxical here because all faiths are intimately hugely 
intimately entwined with the idea of home and reality, while paradoxically reminding us that we're not home yet and that our reality is not complete. And to confuse the two seems to be very central to all manner of problems. And I think that that has been something that has very be much a th uh, yeah been a th theme at times i read voraciously as a teenager the victorian novels a 19th century novel fan you know so not the kind of thing you should be doing as a teenage boy certainly where i grew up but there i was curled up with pride and prejudice or jane eyre and one of the things that i taught i've just been doing a class at nazareth or, or a series of lectures at nazareth on dante and the idea of medieval pilgrimage and then recognizing when protestantism um emerged in the 1500th 16th century onwards and there was a, certainly in england a shutting down of all pilgrim shrines as papist superstitious nonsense but Pilgrimage didn't go away, it became internalized. One Next to the Bible, when people were getting on ships to come to America to start a new Christian world, a utopia, the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress. And this interior, this in, sort of interiorizes the pilgrimage. And then you recognize that so many 19th century novels are about that. Jane Eyre is a pilgrim novel. The last pages are given to a vision of heaven. The reader, I married him, she finds the love of her life. She creates an earthly family, but the final story is the heavenly family. The, the even so come Lord Jesus, the book ends with. So it is this pilgrimage of making the right choices to get there. Elizabeth Bennett with making the right choices to get there. Little women, they're reading Pilgrim's Progress in the first few chapters. And it's about how do they find home with integrity and um, even when they get home it's not home and I think that is part of my spiritual story was reading that and recognizing that this is something profoundly so about the story that paradox of of home and not home and um, so here I am, an Englishman living in America and teaching here, which sort of emphasizes that home and not home. And at the moment, uh, having decided over the, uh, this time last year, having this, uh, around about this time last year, having decided it was time to move on and think, well, I can sell up and then I will move home to England. And I quit in June and I haven't moved anywhere yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't even put my house on sale or even or even tidied it so um <laughs> well everything's out on the floor as if that's the first step of tidying but then it just became a floor drobe so um so there's my spiritual journey and and some indication of how I got into Hebrew Bible because what's the Hebrew Bible about people looking for a home and then how to live in that home and the greatest crime according to the deuteronomistic history in the book of deuteronomy is to assume that it's yours by right it's yours by gift and um and i feel that very much about yeah if we relate to our material world as a gift not a right 
then maybe our relationship with it will be healthier. Mm. And we will take it not for granted, but we will take it as a joy every morning, which sounds like a Hallmark card, but went there. So, yeah, next question, please. <laughs> any comments, <laughs> any thoughts, any reflections? Claire? I actually did want to respond to a lot of the things that you said about home, because last fall I did a... Um, I wrote a Bible study on the book of Revelation yeah, and which is all about you finally come to the restored creation. Mm. And it's like uh, that there is a, the transliteration of the um, 21st Psalm where you get to the end and they said, no more a stranger or a guest, but like a child at home. Like that's what we are hoping for. That's who you're aspiring to. So I also I'm wanted to show you this. My brother-in-law gave it to me. It's Judges for biblical womanhood. Oh, sticker, since you were the one that. <laughs> oh, look at that. Oh, yes. She's nailed him there. Yep. <laughs> so. um, well, I, where is that from? I like that. Um, and at the end of Revelation, what is surprising is that it's not as if everybody gets assumed up into heaven, but heaven comes down to earth. It's a merging of the two. Um, the new heaven it, and the new earth. Yeah. And, and, they're always um, open. And it's. Yeah, this earth is not just somewhere we put up with until we can get out of it. This is this is the real thing. This is yes is to be treated with justice. This is part of the story. This is part uh, and mm -hmm. yeah, which yeah. included that whole like kind of the the climate change kind of that that was the last part. Like, what does climate change say about our eschatology? How does our eschatology change in light of it? So yeah, yeah absolutely spot on. Yeah. Yeah. I also appreciated you saying about ADHD because I was <laughs> diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 35. Mm. Surprise, you have ADHD. Oh, well, that explains my whole entire life. Oh, no, that was me at 50. He was like, have you ever thought? And I was like, it wasn't around when I was <laughs> younger. It wasn't mm -hmm. a thing. And my dad was a teacher and didn't quite believe in dyslexia. So there was no hope for anybody recognizing <laughs> me. I was just naughty. Um, and so, yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. And actually, all of us have some experience with neurodiversity. Yeah. So with Jess's journey with ADHD and me and Emily are both raising autistic children. Mm. And uh, my son, Daniel, who has autism, also has ADHD and was just diagnosed at eight. So he's got a little bit of a chronological advantage that he's being raised in a different time when we know more. Yeah. But um his neurodiversity absolutely shapes his relationship with mommy's church and his relationship <laughs> with his own faith. And I probably a hundred times more so because he's a PK. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, his life has been about how nothing that he does looks like what you expect. Yeah. which is so right. often how I explain autism and ADHD to people who are like, I've only ever heard those as scary words brought up by certain anti-vaxxer celebrities. Uh, what, you know, tell me something that'll make me feel better. And mm -hmm. like, you know, Daniel is in his own world and it's our job to join it because it's mm -hmm. a lovely place and to make mm -hmm. his world a safe place. And to make our world hospitable yes. yes 
Yeah, I think it's a both world thing because he does have to exist in this world. So how do we make that world hospitable whilst respecting? And I think if we get that lesson right there, we get that lesson right with anybody that comes from outside any other ring. I think there's really mm-hmm. important lessons there. I, when I started my undergraduate degree, I and so I trained as a nurse, worked as a nurse a bit, been a pastor for a while, so I didn't start college till I was 27 and that can all be explained under the headline ADHD and I'm not ungrateful for it because it made me do things I wouldn't have thought about otherwise and discover things on but I remember working very hard simply to finish a single paper very often but I was working very very I was so serious I was very very hard and I remember my energy was so much spent trying to get the answer right for things. And this was in a school, very, very top-notch theological department in a, in a London college, um, right up there. But it was still the kind of scholarship where there was a right and wrong answer largely. Um, and that's not a wild criticism of it, but it, there, is a, there are problems as we know around that kind of thinking. But, I worked very hard to get my answers right. And that meant shutting out a lot of questions in my head. And then bit by bit over time, and even from the teaching of people like Gail Ricciuti, our homiletics professor, and one of the nicest experiences at Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School has been the fact it's collegiality and the fact that we're all listening and learning from each other and I would just learn so much from Gail um, and one of the things she would teach for preaching is listen to and listen to the peripheral voices and the images that flicker in your head when you're reading a text take those seriously why are they there what is your what connections is your mind making and realizing that was like opening a toy box because I was off and realizing that rather than shutting those out to get the right answer to go why am I seeing that why am I thinking that where does that connection take me and whoa and if you are ADHD the propensity to run along those tracks is maddeningly over the top but boy if you can sit down and think why and look at an unexpected connection and think, why is it there? And then going with it, you have one hell of an original take on something and it works. I was reading the Emmaus Road text for a sermon a few years ago and I kept thinking lavender. Uh, What? My mother used to wrap blankets and sweaters every spring she would wrap them up in in Yardley's lavender soap and so every fall when she would get them out again every there was this wonderful smell of lavender so to this day I do that and my mother's present every time and you think of Emmaus Road story he breaks the bread and Christ is with them and there was my image and everybody has that smell or flavor or music they know how the past is suddenly present and real. And what if Emmaus is that times 10? You know, suddenly you're aware of a reality with you. And so those strange connections can make the text alive. And that is a, 
a gift of ADHD. It might mean that I never actually finish the sermon. I'm still making it up in the pulpit the next day. But, <laughs> you know, so there's a payoff. But things like that. So I think hopefully we will see neurodiv neurodiversity as a gift. But I don't think that. And maybe there was more great, greater tolerance for that. Um, and I often can be heard raging, but capitalism. And, but I do think that the kind of um, demands for conformity and productivity that are part of capitalism narrows things down in a way which is entirely alienating to all manner of diversity, not just neurodiversity. And, um, and so I do think that there is a problem and yet precisely the creativity is where the neurodiversity is all that ability to make connections that are unforeseen so um yeah that's yeah I, my poor people who took my bible study had to watch clips from the seventh seal and terminator 2 and all sorts yeah. of apocalyptic movies they had to listen to apocalyptic music they had to look at <laughs> apocalyptic art from art history it was a lot of fun but I was just like, oh, I think I probably overwhelmed these poor folks. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the story and there's the wisdom as we learn it. And how many classes have I done that in all of them? But there we are, you know, so. Um, I, wonder totally. if, I wonder if it's ADHD. I, yeah, let's diagnose people in the Bible. And I think you probably have to be a little bit ADHD to be a prophet. <laughs> Very often to have that. Oh, God curious perspective so yeah 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 and speaking of you know going in that direction anyway about prophets and things of that nature that are very much your bread and butter mm -hmm. uh I, that's is the biggest reason why we wanted to have you here was to talk about your perspective of the hebrew bible mm -hmm. um all of us with experiences in the ministry and preaching uh we don't hear the nicest things about the hebrew bible mm -hmm. uh in our in our contexts no. um i'm blessed to be serving a church where we're we're aggressively getting away from saying old testament at all especially mm -hmm. because one of my uh one of my local rabbi friends um he reads my sermons every week and he dings me if i say old testament uh because he it, it really really bothers him the idea of this supersessionism that mm -hmm. yeah. everything that everything that we share in common with our jewish friends is the old stuff and then christianity came in with the new stuff yeah um so you know we have an enlightened perspective in one simple way there but even so i still hear hear things about oh well you know it's just it's a bunch of baguettes you just read there and it's a whole bunch of them this person had this kid and this kid and this kid and then it's a bunch of stuff about this really angry scary god like everybody <laughs> calms down in the new testament and mm. you know so your perspective is valuable to us in that um first of all i am not aggressively anti-old for a number of reasons the first was that when i was a kid it was the old that i liked and it was the old word that i liked so just to put that piece in there and to say that um that is not something i will insist upon to the extent uh, that is not something that i will insist upon because I recognize its connotations and I am not about insulting 
my colleagues and friends in that respect at all. I just want to say that for me, it's its antiquity is its value in that sense. Mm. Let's call it vintage testament, says A.J. Levine, a New Testament professor and um, Jewish woman who has written, have you seen the Jewish New Testament? It's a yes. terrific volume, yeah. So, but she will argue for, I don't mind Old Testament, it's vintage Testament. That's it's, it's our prejudice against the old and privileging of the new, which is probably a capitalist thing. Um, that we should question, and we see that in everything, that um, to age is regretted, and we know how we, we have a whole market out there which prevents signs of aging. So it's tied up in many ways with a problem we have with aging. Um, and our Bibles have Old Testament written on the front covers and things. So I will use the term Old Testament and then spend some time on it in the first classes and, and look at other language. Um, so I respect absolutely, and I will on syllabuses and things have Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament, but we will talk and we will recognize there is no language for these books, which is not loaded and ideological already in some way. And so let us sit with that discomfort and the, and the discomfort that the term Old Testament has accrued in Christian history. So there's a so I had that sort of pivoting around the word. And then yes, there's all these other, I think what is more problematic for me is that the supersessionist piece is there in the interpretive move. This is the angry, violent God, this is the loving God. And the first thing I would say is um the Hebrew Bible, Tanakh, Old Testament, First Testament, is a collection that traces a minimum of 1400 years of history. It is composed as the national, it's the chronicle of a people. And we know from comments here and there in the Bible that well, comments here and that refer to, for further details about this king, look at the annals of the king. So we know that chronicling king's reigns is part of the culture, the library, but the ones that have survived, uh, the collection that survived are the sacred scriptures, the biblical scriptures. Um, but they are the chronicle of a nation. If the if the New Testament represented the first 1400 years of the church, would it be any less aggressive looking? Would it have fewer battles? No, it wouldn't. What is the New Testament? It's like a 50 year span of documents saying, um, how do we do this in the church? What about circumcision? Because a lot of our people are Jews and a lot of them aren't and people are worrying. It's these policy questions. The New Testament is the book of policy wonks. And um, fretting over things. And at the background of that is a fair amount of violence, I have to say. 
you know, in who's in and who's out. And there are images, you go to the book of Revelation and it is full throttle, um, old style. Daniel, it's Venus, it's, it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, like they, he brings back a lot of his stuff. That it's recycling that imagery for the battle against evil now. And absolutely, the image, and it goes beyond that, it goes right back to the dragons of Mesopotamia are there. And um, so the New Testament is not without that. And yeah, it, and also the theme that is played out that is that around which everything coheres in the Hebrew Bible is God's election of the people, an unsolicited, gratuitous election, love of a people, where stipulations follow. Exodus comes before Sinai. So liberation, salvation comes before law. And one of the Christian themes is, oh, the Jews are all about salvation by law and legalism. And it's, yeah, that's not just not the case and Christianity you look again look at Christian history has it avoided legalism mm -mm -mm. Uh, you know so it uh, and Paul is wonderful on this in, in in Galatians I can't remember the verse but what was begun in the spirit is continued in the flesh and I just think that's a human thing we start something off enthusiasm and then we start to uh, and also those guys who are, who are legalistic need to castrate themselves and yeah <laughs> so we're off so you know so um it's that's just the pendulum of human society human movement human existence and um and the church has kind of missed the point very often rather than say rather than recognizing so many stories in the hebrew bible to be about us it's gone there's the jews again being legalistic and wicked and aren't we and it's not like yeah no it's this is inherent to religion this is inherent this is within our own story now we are we we identify as as a descendant of Israel, these are our stories about our behavior and continue to be present in our behavior. So the things like that. So yes, in the Hebrew Bible, we're gonna have battles, we're gonna have famines and constantly the Old Testament is trying to insist, has this deep insistent requirement, conviction that God is not outside any of these experiences, even in the battles, even in the horror, God is somehow present and it's working that out and it never is a stable perspective. There is never a stable perspective. And so um, it poses the questions, it leaves us to find the answers. We used to sing you know, about the Bible being the answer to all needs when I was a kid. And I recognize it poses the question. We don't, it places upon us the task of answering those questions in our own setting. And that is very much how the Hebrew Bible works is where is God in this? So that's why we have the questioning books like Job, like Jonah, like, um, Jeremiah, if I may speak about 
my own specialist area, there are two accounts of suffering that are side by side in the book of Jeremiah. One is the one we see easily and the one we both use and dislike simultaneously. And that is the people were wicked. The people turned from God. So God let the invaders destroy Jerusalem, its punishment, its education. It will whop them and train this stiff-necked people. That is teaching which is recycled in Christianity plenty. It's also recognized within the Hebrew Bible to be inadequate. It is only one story. There is a truth there. We tell our kids as they go out to school of a morning, work hard and you'll do well. Um, be lazy and it won't work out so well. And we also know that we might have neurodivergent kids and that it won't be quite so mechanical as that. So that there is a truth there. Do well and you will do well. But it's also inadequate. And then, so Job comes in and says, whoa, what a minute. And the book of Jeremiah has that. Jerusalem was destroyed because the people turned, the people were unfaithful. And there are aspects of that which probably hit an important note. And, and, and I could even say a little bit more about how that's functioning in context, but there's a whole alternative story. The biggest, clearest image of suffering in the whole book is the figure of Jeremiah. And his suffering doesn't come as punishment. His suffering is the result of his faithfulness. So there is a whole alternative account of why suffering occurs and his suffering is a righteous suffering. And they sit side by side and nobody at the end of the book fixes or does the math and come out with the right answer it says sit with that and each generation has to claim the reasons for its sufferings is it complicity with bad structures and injustice that is causing suffering in our people and bringing our nation down or is it an ill fit in the world and is there some other piece is this a suffering which we is a witness the, the, they play side by side in the book of Jeremiah and there's no one adjudicating in that juxtaposition. We have to sit and work that out for ourselves. Otherwise, we, be, we fall into the martyr syndrome constantly or the punishing syndrome constantly and Christianity does both. It's either the martyrdom Puritan sect, the world is against us, we are the utopian righteous, now suffering is witness to that righteousness, or it's the preacher saying, this is why the hurricane came here. It's all the homosexuals. And, and um, so neither is adequate in itself. They, they yeah. They're in dialogue constantly, and, and that discourse is detachment. That discourse stops us finding a home too quickly and using that almost, yeah. We find an insight, and then we build a home in that insight, and that insight suddenly becomes an idol and, and, and a lie, mm. and it happens too quickly. No. Too so, um, so the Hebrew Bible, for me, is actually the story of the real dirt and the search for God in the experience we have and to say that um, 
that it doesn't have relevance or it's an angry God is to miss so many points within the text where the angry God, and actually I could say a little bit about that in a second, but the New Testament is not without angry God. Mm-hmm. And the central witness and everybody's, many, everybody, many a person's bumper sticker or wall um, embroidery for God so loved the world that he gave his only begot to it. That's a nasty, nasty, I, what? This was God's love, this cruelest of ventures. What do we mean by that? At the center of the New Testament is one of the most horrifically violent acts, which becomes defining. And that is the central image of love. To I think we don't recognize that. We don't do the necessary work on that if we have this, um, rather slighter sentimental view of the New Testament and what love is and and that we forget the cost of that love and what the context of that love is. I actually had a uh, Lutheran pastor say to me once that if we don't view the atonement as being a Christus victor, then God is like a toxic, monstrous parent. (laughs) Mm. Um, And I... Raised in a fairly, well, not raised, but I, I was formed in a fairly evangelical penal substitution world. Um, and so Chris's Victor was outside my experience, but the more I look at it, um, I've been interested in the trickster theme in the Hebrew Bible. Those who are powerless, women or Israelites among the nations, you have to have that trickster mentality to, you have no legal agency you have no recognized agency so if you're going to have any power you have to get in bed with the politicians as esther does or just refuse to turn up as vashti does that kind of trickster motif of jacob and it's it's it thwarts our easy morals very often but what about thinking about the resurrection as a trickster theme that is there in the Christus Victor sermon of John Chrysostom. I think it's the third or fourth century. It is a short, the shortest Easter sermon you will ever see. It is the most beautiful, perfect sermon you will ever see, where he says, um, hell thought it had a body and found it had none. The earth thought it had death but found it was broken open with life. Uh, I'm paraphrasing badly, but it's that kind of trickery that hell opens for Christ and Christ says, no, you can't have me, (laughs) boom. And so there is that sort of wonderful trickster theme of undoing the powers of death there. So, yeah. We're here for it. I feel like I'm back in school and I am loving every moment of it. I was thinking coming into this about um, just how things come full circle, you know, a decade later, whether or not we want to admit it's been that long. <laughs> that, um, you know, the, the title of our of our podcast is that we are the dangerous liberal lady, lady preachers. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know, Jess, I don't think I knew you early in seminary, but Natalie and Mark definitely knew me early in seminary. I was, 
I was neither dangerous nor liberal <laughs> when I started seminary. A lot has changed, and a lot of that had to do, Mark, with with your teachings. I, the way I tell the story now is that I came into seminary with my head and my heart at odds with each other. God had placed on my heart this this all inclusive. Um, widely, broadly accepting, um, radical, loving sort of spirit, but my my brain knew what what the Bible said at face value and did not have the interpretive tools to, as you said in class once, peek under the skirt of the text. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and nowadays, even ten years ago, some of the language we look back and think. Yeah, we've moved a long way in 10 yes, years. Yes, we have. But, we have. Yeah, it's that but, I, yeah. But, but, you know, whatever language we put around it, to, to, really, um, to really see the text in a new way and in a um, more faithful way, really. And so I remember having just this moment of like, I don't know, we're all Methodist here, the three of us women. And so it's like my, my Asbury experience, right? And, and it, rather than my heart being strangely warmed, it was like my mind was strangely warmed. Like my, my head and my heart could come into, into sync with each other um, in a way that they hadn't before. Or into an interesting dialogue, I think, very often. It's like what our impulses yes. are and what that's prompting us to work out in our head. Mm -hmm. and then, yeah, they think they, there's, the best is when they're in, a, in that juicy discursive dialogue. And just for our listeners at home, in case you think I'm some <laughs> kind of upskirt monster, um, that phrase comes from some old campery where someone would say about a straight person or somebody who is posing as straight if they say something do something that's a little bit telltale it's like well they're letting their petticoat show mm -hmm. and so it's like it's that kind of peeking yes to another side <laughs> an unforeseen a hidden and also and I first sort of started thinking about exegesis in that way we're thinking about the only times we see God in the Bible or in these visions which only describe the periphery so <laughs> Isaiah 6 uh, mm. and I saw the Lord I am mighty but what do we hear about we hear the fringe of the robe the skirt the bottom of the skirt right and it's yeah. like that peak of God and having like oh you know um, mm -hmm. So, um, so exegesis. I apologize. That might not have been the best. No, no, no. It's just, it's just oh, it's it's, hearing it, hearing my words back at me, thinking, yeah, the connotations are different down the road, and I better just give some explanation um, beyond. If anybody's listening at home and thinking that sounds really crass, there is, there is more to it than that, and it's that idea of God is whoa, and we see the fringe. Or the mm -hmm. pet, it's like the, the skirts and the layers. And um, beautiful image of this. Um, and let me recommend Elaine Scarry's The Body in Pain, written, uh, published 1985. The first half of the book is about suffering and pain and even torture. It's a hard read. The second half is the creativity that comes out of that. And she talks about the sufferings of the, the Hebrew people, which she uses the Hebrew Bible as one of the models and the suffering of the Hebrew people who then go into the wilderness and 
there is no tangible God. They're in a wilderness. There is no tangible God that they are to believe in. And so what are they given? They are given a tabernacle, these layers of curtains, these skirts, these fringes of the robe of God in the wilderness. And what's at the center? There is the, the word. So you have the textile, the kind of worship, and the text, the word, and that is where we are with God. We don't have the complete, we have the fringe of the skirt still. Um, there's a bit where Moses does meet God face to face up in chapter 26, is it? I'm off the top of my head of Exodus, 40 days, 40 nights, and comes out with the tablets. Of, and, and so he has the tablets and the tabernacle. Everybody else doesn't get to meet God face to face. We're in the valley. We have the tablets and the tabernacle, the text and the textile. And that's yeah. Make do with yeah. word worship. Yeah. With my alliterations. Mm -hmm. um, and that's fine. And again, it's the detachment thing. Yeah. We, yeah. yeah. That's so fascinating to me because I've been reading a lot about like, you know, the time period in which kind of the Hebrew tribes emerged historically. And it's in the wake of the, um, you know, Bronze Age collapse, right? Yeah. And so for this area, the region which they grew up in, like for 500 years, the written word disappeared entirely. Mm. It was just gone. Yeah, like so the Egypt, Empire collapsed, Uberitz, you know, the history of Egypt and its, its three, four thousand year run was one of ebb and flow. And so, yes, it's one of the ebbs because Egypt ran the whole of the Levant right up to Syria mm. and up to Turkey. And it was always a, all battles were on quite where those boundaries are between the different peoples. But when is Israel, sorry, when Egypt is. Has completely retreated for a while that these little peoples can start growing and developing and start warring among themselves about who gets this plot of land and that plot of land and the bible emerges in in that moment and then the superpowers rise from the the east and start moving westward Assyria, babylon and the bible is written under exile that's one of the things i was going to say about that whole suffering thing um in recent years my work has sort of turned to the context of of trauma studies and i think this is probably since any of you were at the school i was invited to write a paper on trauma and jeremiah by a fairly top-notch jeremiah scholar and i'm thinking oh i don't know anything about that well, and i said that to him it's not really my subject I, I i know it's out there and it's not something i've studied and he said yes and i think you would be i think it would be interesting to see you do that with the kind of work you do so um and he was absolutely right it, it really made a big difference to how i was seeing the book of jeremiah particularly but the idea of trauma um reading it back into history is trauma as that loss of a stabilized world from whatever perspective whether it's a personal attack or it's an, a, a, a natural disaster, but something which is so overwhelming in our experience that it leaves us with the impression that the world is not as stable and predictable as we had hoped or thought, and we do not have a sense of control. And that can become a major problem, psychological wounding, and the word trauma means wound. And, and um, what does that happen? What 
so we can write about that at the, at the personal level and people do, but what happens at the communal level when Babylon comes and takes away your king, your prophets, your priests and destroys your temple, is God over, is God dead? Now, in any trauma situation, one of the first responses, not necessarily long-term healthiest response, and in some ways it can seem to be a very masochistic and problematic response, but is, is guilt. What could we have done differently? What was our neglect? We know in cycles of abuse, the abused one is often like, well, it's my fault. If I was behaved better, then they wouldn't behave like that to me. That's when it's incredibly toxic and problematic. But when you think about it as a first response, it's the one response that gives us agency when we have lost any sense of control or agency. If we're like, what could I have done differently? What should I have done? How is it my fault? What could I have, how could I have prevented this? It is the response of, it still gives us some sense of control. Now you put it in the context of the Hebrew Bible um, and you have up until the sixth century, uh, the ancient religion of Israel, which is very much like the religion of its neighbors of the other city-states, the Canaanite city-states, even the Greek city-states, where the religion is focused on a temple, on a hill, with its priests, with its king, and with its prophets and scribes, and that's the system, and God watches over, think of all those Psalms, 46, 48, God is protecting Zion, its enemies will be chased away. So if its enemies break in and destroy the city and, and deport its people, as happened in 586, 87 BCE, has God failed? Were the gods of Babylon stronger or has God stopped caring? Those are the most appalling outcomes because everything is lost. If God were or is God punishing us, might not be a nice theology, might not be a fully adequate one, but it's the one that means God is not gone, uh, nor is God not interested. God is punishing, not a particularly nice theology if that was our only theology but if you think about it in context to say God is punishing us is to say that God is still present still active more than that is interested in us interested in us to educate us and teach us again not a theology you would want to make the center of everything or carry away but in context it's a theological response to disaster which is the one response which gives you a future because um the relationship is not over. And if you think about responses within the Bible, while you have people saying this is punishment, this is what we deserve, there are as many voice, voices and verses saying, yeah, but it's still pretty shitty God. And I love that the Hebrew Bible does that. You know, why do the wicked prosper and the good suffer? Um, plenty of complaints, even in the second part of Isaiah, which is the part set after that disaster, after the exile, when people are thinking about coming back to Jerusalem and rebuilding, there's even, you know, this was punishment, but it was maybe too harsh a punishment, God. It was maybe beyond what anybody deserves. And it's that very dynamic chiding relationship with mm -hmm. God, which is so fascinating in the Hebrew Bible, because what it's really doing is refining our very idea and model of God. And um, 
and you can get, get a sense out of this, a God who is no longer simply the patron of the Jerusalem temple, so a local deity and patron of the people, if that God has the power to call Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus of Persia to do the divine bidding, then that is a God who has a much more global remit. So a bigger, truer monotheism starts to build out of that if we want a monotheism, whatever truer monotheism means, but you have a God who has a global remit. And so, not surprisingly, it's in those chapters of Isaiah that we start talking about God globally and who has a vantage point which is not just about us, but has a broader view. All of this is in the Hebrew Bible and the imagery is utterly recycled in the New Testament. And I think we mm -hmm. tend to forget that in the earliest days of the church, the only reason anybody would read the New Testament is because they had made it sound like the Old Testament to justify it. And we've kind of switched it now that we only read the Old Testament because it helps us with some of the imagery in the new or it's the background to the new. And the other thing we do is we, as alongside saying these are the angry texts of an angry God and isn't the New Testament better, but we will grab the stuff out of the Old Testament, which is useful when we're angry or there's something we yeah. don't like whether it's sexual mores and ethics or justice issues, we'll grab those out of the New Testament. So we want the anger when it's useful to us. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the time we'll have the sentimental bumper stickers, please, is the way it can happen if we don't put the two together. Also the greatest witness of the Hebrew Bible, which if we don't retain it in the New Testament is a problem. The, the greatest witness of the Hebrew Bible is this material created order matters. Any push in the in the early church days from Marcion or Gnostics was to get rid of the Old Testament because you inconveniently believed that the physical world was good. And that's why we should keep it because the material world is good. It is God given. It is important. And we can spiritualize in the New Testament and forget that in a way. We shouldn't because the New Testament doesn't do it either, but it's easier if we ignore the Old Testament to, to spiritualize our way out of the material in the New Testament. Mm. And, and then already we're losing our angle on justice and earth justice. Yeah. Particularly powerful in this season mm -hmm. of Advent. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, totally. Paul, all the world, all the creation, all the earth is groaning for salvation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, so one of the so two things to share with this group. One is uh, in response to uh, this conversation about peeking under the skirt of the text and whether or not that holds up in today's society, just know for the sake of the four people in this conversation and for anyone listening to this, that uh, me and Michelle George Yates, who we had interviewed before and who is also a CRCDS alum, uh, we had like a whole list back in the day of things yep. that Mark said during class that <laughs> came off yeah. as slightly inappropriate and yet also were incredibly illuminating. And so this is what we know and love you for. Because um, you. you started out you started out on the very first day of class telling us about how uh, God doesn't have a dangly bit. 
and telling us about how God is not gendered. And then you told us about peeking under the skirt of the text. Um, and then later on, uh, when you were preaching about, or not, not preaching, I preach when you were teaching <laughs> about, um, so about uh, clobber verses in the Old Testament that so frequently are used to denigrate LGBTQIA people. You were talking about this one verse in Leviticus about you shall not lie with man as with another man for that is an abomination. And you broke that down very, very much in, in the Hebrew to tiny little pieces to the point where you're like, okay, so first of all, reading this, it's, it's, it, it, it does not come off in straight black and white. It's, it's kind of a mess intentionally mm-hmm. second of all you brought up this whole thing about how about like okay so are we making some comparison between like anal sex and vaginal sex and it was kind of like okay if i wasn't awake yet like <laughs> i am now so thank you but anyway so just for our listeners to know that this is who this man yeah. is and we love him for it well but the, um, yeah oh but God. the other <laughs> element the other element of that if you don't mind me saying so because where Emily started us with was that when she started seminary way back in 2009, mm-hmm. she didn't consider herself to be a dangerous liberal lady preacher. Right. That's kind of the point. And it's the reason why I, when that was hurled at me as a YouTube insult, mm-hmm. um, I kept it because a, a YouTube commenter wrote that to me when I took a text, it happened to be from the New Testament, and gave a different interpretation to it than the one that he had heard 500 times. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, no, 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 your interpretation is wrong. What I was taught is the one right interpretation and there are no others. Mm -hmm. And I was reading this about how I'm a dangerous liberal and I've been called a million other things in addition to that that probably aren't fit to air. Um, and I was reading this like, 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 okay, I'm sitting here in my nice little home in the suburbs with my minivan in the driveway, and I have a favorite oatmeal cookie recipe. Like, am I dangerous? Like, if <laughs> I'm dangerous, then what does the rest of the world look like to you? Yeah. And that's the point. Mm-hmm. Like, we have to be careful what we're even calling dangerous. And perhaps what we need to do is completely subvert what these words mean, and then break open these texts in so doing to give us a different kind of faith. It's something gonna... prophets model all the time, they will take some term you can see they're taking some cliche from their moment and they will play with it there is also a very sort of british thing of taking a difficult comment or image and using it ironically there are problems around that because people say oh it's just a joke is an easy way of doing it but when it's done well it's to hear ourselves and the assumptions that cluster around some of our comments even the ones that we don't ourselves use are revealing of our context and, and how we see the world sometimes. And that's why they we should be able to look back and go, ooh, I wish I didn't use that quite so like that. And that means that we are becoming aware of our own language. We are moving on with it and our understandings and our recognition. So yes, um, as for the, and already I, when you were talking about that God doesn't have a penis, um, there's I, I'm moving a little bit from that, not to restore, not to decastrate the deity <laughs> or anything, but 
um, I've sort of, uh, two things. One is a book written by a friend of mine, an Old Testament Hebrew Bible professor in Exeter, um, Francesca Stavralopoulou. I don't have to say her name very often because she's chessy when I speak to her. She's written a book called God and Anatomy. And um, it's a history of how God is imagined physically. Um, and it's brilliant and shows all the times in the Bible where God is assumed to have a body. But the other thing I want to say is that the danger of, of refusing God to have a body, which is one of the traditions in the Bible, but it also means that we can, again, so spiritualize God that we, again, create that appalling separation between the material and the spiritual. And of course, the spirit only mm -hmm. has the material as its vehicle in this world. And the other thing is that verse towards the end of Genesis 1, in the image of God, God made them. Male and female, God made them. So the image of God on this earth is the full gamut of human, <laughs> living, male and female. And um, it's not that God is ungendered, uh, which my God doesn't have a penis thing su suggests. It means that God is full gender, is, is the full breadth gender. of gendering is represented. And the other thing is, remember throughout, uh, do you know Bray Adams? Mm -hmm. Yep. She asked me after one of my creation classes, well, what about transgender in that? And it was a brilliant question because it was sort of like one of those bolt of lightning moments. Throughout the chapter, we have the full spectrum expressed by the opposites. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means everything. <laughs> and it was more and it was evening and it was morning. That means the full day. <laughs> um, heaven and earth, light and dark. These are uh, these are. Typical Hebrew idioms for everything. Um, and so male and female aren't just men and women. Male and female is the full spectrum of <laughs> living. Male, female, and every other category around it. Um, if that sounds a little bit forcing a modern interpretation on antiquity, well, good, because it, the text rhetorically allows it, but also... Do you think transsexuality, intersexuality was not a thing then, that people were not born into sex then, that people did not express transgender? Of course it was a thing then. <laughs> so, um, and yes, Leviticus has problems with it, but it also has problems with mixed fibres and surf and turf. So, you know, you've, again, this is the negotiation as we go along, but certainly from that first blueprint, God, is, the image of God on this earth is all humanity. Mm. It's full spectrum. Yeah. I feel like this is the part where we all say amen and end. Yeah. <laughs> so, Indeed. Yeah, so, and again, so that, again, so anything, I, I'm moving away from terms which could be then carried away as me dematerializing. Um, <laughs> or giving us permission to completely spiritualize because that's when we you know um i was so methodist was my start in life 
the the ordination movement I was ordained in is the Salvation Army, which I, sounds odd over here because we only know it as a charity and one that gets a bad rap for its homophobia at times. Um, there's a lot more to the story than that, and certainly, it's also it started out as a as a as a mission within Methodism and then a breakaway from Methodism. So it carries with it the whole Wesleyan piece and the social justice piece that's within Wesleyan. Wesleyanism and from my perspective Wesleyanism at its best not just heart but matter and food and um but the Salvation Army because it started as a mission not a church did not practice the sacraments and people have tend to say very often it's a non-sacramental movement and I grew up you know, was formed along those lines I have the last 14 years worked at a, a, an Episcopal church in the Rochester area, Christchurch, Pittsford. Go Christchurch. Everybody come to Christchurch. Um, it, it's a lovely, lovely congregation. And after being there a couple of years teaching, I do the Sunday classes, although of course I'm stopping now. I was invited to be one of the chalice bearers for the weekly Eucharist. And I was like, oh, this is gonna be so weird. And I took the cup and I went forward to the first person, I felt that I ought to have got my Eucharistic, you know, sacramental theology in place before doing this, that I needed to have a full understanding of it. But I kind of went along with it and handing, holding that cup out to the first person, it wasn't the strangeness that struck me, it was the familiarity that was strange. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, I was a nurse for 22 years. A lot of my work was caring for the dying. I just mm -hmm. can't tell you how many cups I have held out to somebody. And mm -hmm. as a Salvation Army worker and officer, uh, Tuesday night in, when I was working in London was the night that I had the van and the, the um, soup and sandwiches in the back. I would, between about 11 and 2 a.m., drive to where anybody was sleeping rough mm -hmm. and hand a cup of soup to somebody sleeping rough. And it was just yeah. like, oh, I've always been sacramental. This is what mm -hmm. I do, this is what it's about. And it's not giving some spiritual lesson in salvation, it's handing a cup. And if there's anything more spiritual than that basic human move, then I don't know what it is. And anybody that's cared for somebody, a dying parent or a newborn baby, there is no division between the material and the spiritual. Mm -hmm. Feeding that baby physically is an act of love. Mm -hmm. When you're brushing somebody's hair as they're unconscious in their last hours, or you're polishing their nails and thinking, why am I bothering with this? This person is dying, but you do it. And it's an act of love, that attention to a physical. It is... The spiritual and the material are utterly inseparable. So for me, it was recognizing this is where justice begins. Mm -hmm. This is where if I don't get, if I don't understand this act as material and spiritual, heaven and earth, incarnational, sacramental, that then I don't know what my that my justice flows from here because every person I see is a physical, spiritual entity who I want to hold the cup out to be dressed 
to be housed, to be safe. Everything flows from that for me. And, um, and suddenly to realize that's it, that's the calling, whether it's the classroom, the pulpit, or the soup kitchen, or just my own home. So Mark, on that note, right now, what excites you? Um, Poirot. I've been watching the TV show and reading Agatha Christie's. Um, clay, because I'm throwing clay pots, which is very Jeremiah. Um, <laughs> and I'm at the point, I've, so I, I left the job after, after 16, pretty well 16 years to the day of my interview for the job at Colgate Rochester Crozier, it was time to go very much. I was exhausted from the um, pandemic and things and because of the ADHD piece, realizing why writing and finishing something is such a struggle and the things I want to write and I needed to take time for. Um, so I am still, deeply excited with my work. I hope that just comes across in the way I talk about it. It's still, it's not, it's a, yeah, it's a, a deep investment in that. I, I, um, how I'm going about that and precisely what I'm gonna be doing in the next two years is rather up in the air at the moment. I was planning to be selling the house and moving right about now when I haven't done so because I've suddenly got very busy with a few other things here, which um, was fine because it was, uh, it felt important to do these things, but as to what I'm precisely what I'm doing in the next couple of years, it's not that I, it's that it's a little bit up in the air for some specific reasons at the moment, which I'm still working through, but the, the, the main, this is, this is what I do. This is who I am. This is where I'm at. And this is not, this is still deeply exciting. And what I do, if it's too far of a departure from the pulpit and the classroom and the study, then I will not be honoring what excites me most. The book I want to, I've got a few manuscripts in play, again, an ADHD, not one book, but several in concert. The, 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 the Heartland is called The Book of Mourning. It's about Jeremiah. It's the book of mourning because it's mourning the loss of a world, the, the temple. It's drawing from grief studies, trauma studies to read the book of Jeremiah, each chapter sort of exploring that from a different aspect. Um, and that is hugely engrossing, hugely engaging. And I need to find a way of shutting it down, not still opening up because it will never be finished if I keep doing that. So that's, that's really, it, it's re remarkably thrilling to me, that work. And I can spend several hours at my desk and just be entirely engrossed in that. And I, I've been taking a bit of a break just because I needed it, but that is, yeah. So Mark, the note that we usually end on with our guests is, if there was one thing you could have the world know about God, what would it be? 
God is love. Mm. And love is a denser, bigger, tighter, sloppier word than we realize. Mm. Yeah. To teach in the classroom more and more occurred to me is an act of love for me. Mm -hmm. To be in the pulpit to preach is an act of love. Yeah. Yeah. We adore it. Well, I think students know that and it took me a while to even realize that's what it was. But I remember talking about it once with a therapist that standing in a, when I was a nurse at two o'clock in the morning, being in charge of a whole unit and just having this real sense of ownership and responsibility and something about that, which just enlivened me and my therapist is pushing me. What's the word? What word? How would you describe that? And I end up saying, it feels like love. Mm -hmm. And to recognize that, yeah that's the classroom and i think people in my classes maybe know that dangerous liberal lady preachers is produced by natalie bowerman emily hugie and jessica glazer <laughs>